episode 160 above ground podcast with guest china darrington from thrive peer recovery services of ohio disclaimer the host of this podcast timothy patrick and will foley are by no means medical professionals however having lived experience with mental illness themselves they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis by sharing their stories they hope to create connection By creating connection, they hope to help you find your purpose. And through purpose, we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast. Coming at you live with real conversations about mental health from the perspective, it's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now your hosts, TPP and Will Foley. This episode is brought to you by Nipperfest. Nippertown is bringing you some of the best music from the Capital Region and calling it Nipperfest. Nipperfest is a local music festival and it's happening on Saturday, July 23rd at the Music Haven, Central Parks, Connected in New York. Local food, local craft beer. Did I mention it's free? July 23rd it's happening, so bring down the family. Stop at the Above Ground podcast table to say hi. P.S. This is kid and dog friendly. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Above Ground Podcast. Above Ground Podcast. Because you can't serve below. Hey, what is up, TPP? Good morning, man. Happy Sunday to you. Yes, indeed. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. I'm doing all right. Um, I'm rather excited. Uh, we are joined this morning by China Darrington who is the Director of Advocacy and Public Policy for Thrive Peer Recovery Services based in Ohio. And China, we want to thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Uh, Can you tell our listeners who you are and where you've come from and why you do what you do? Sure. So again, my name is China Darrington. I'm currently the Director of Advocacy and Public Policy for Thrive Peer Recovery Services. Uh, Our home base, our administrative offices are right outside of Cleveland, Ohio, Uh, but we do peer recovery support services throughout the state of Ohio, and uh, we are rapidly expanding, so we've got our eyes on the neighboring states. Um, We know that lots of people need help with supportive services, a listening ear, an advocate, and a recovery navigator sometimes to help the challenges that they're dealing with, such as mental health. And we want to walk alongside them and make this process easier to access and connect with the services that will improve their lives. That is very awesome. Such um, an incredible mission. Can you uh, tell our listeners some of the services that you provide? Sure. um, So, So the bulk of our service is peer recovery support. Everything that we do revolves around how we can deliver that peer recovery support service better. Now, because peer recovery support services in Ohio, I'm I'm not sure if this is the alignment that other states have, uh, states vary differently on how they certify peers, the training process that's involved, the certificate or credentialing process. Um, So I can only speak specifically of Ohio, but Ohio, um, the reimbursement model is very often through state-funded Medicaid. And so I'd say the the majority of our population are people who are either uninsured or underinsured or on 
on Medicaid, um, which is actually a blessing because we are a Medicaid expansion state, which allows more people to be eligible for that service than they're eligible to receive that peer recovery support. We're working day in and day out to make sure that there is parity between different types of recovery support services because currently peer recovery support service for substance use disorder is funded in a very different way than mental health is. And that doesn't make much sense because peer recovery support for mental health has been around probably 20 years longer than it was for, for substance use disorder. But again, we have these, these vast disparities in the coverage that any individual will receive. So we try to be very well versed on that so that we can connect somebody some way, you know, and if they if they don't have coverage, there might be another way that we can help support them along the way by connecting them to a program or a service or something that's available within their county. But because it is tied to behavioral health, we do have the assessment process so that we can get a comprehensive wraparound look on what is somebody dealing with biologically, emotionally, or psychologically, um, socially, and environmentally, you know, what's going on in that home and family dynamic that's making it easier or more challenging for them to stabilize and address the, the issue that they see is, is present in their life. We deliver services that are always person-centered and strength-based so that we use what's called a recovery-oriented system of care or ROSI, uh, and that defines how and and why we do just about everything that we do. So we have individual counseling, we offer some groups, um, some of them are more informal, again, because of the, the reimbursement structure, it's just easier for us to have these informal support groups. Sometimes um, a particular individual peer recovery supporter that works for Thrive might might have, you know, they, they might realize that the people that they work with benefit from each other's experience, not just the peer recovery supporters. So uh, recovery in general is kind of an interesting community in how it's built. And because we are a non-clinical service that is often interpreted through a clinical lens, uh, we have um, not the same ethics that a credentialed counselor might have to hold by. So there are some blurred lines that we find actually benefit people in recovery most often. But with that clinical lens, we still uphold the most stringent confidentiality, you know, for um, where that is appropriate and necessary. You had mentioned you, you do have some groups. Um, we do. Yeah. And, that... and again, you, like a group. Peer recovery support is a, you know, it's something that does have a line item for reimbursement, but the people who attend these groups, they don't care about that. I, I have been involved in peer recovery support services for about 15 years, so the pretty long development in the state of Ohio, and I've seen it kind of come together in, in lots of different ways. So I'm speaking in general, not just particularly for Thrive, but some agencies, organizations, recovery community organizations, they take a more informal peer-driven uh, group philosophy where it's, you know, kind of a, a blend between a mutual support group and a, and a structured formal group setting. At Thrive, we have a tendency to keep them more on the, the formal side. There's got to be something that's tied to the treatment plan. And that treatment plan in our, in our world is called a recovery plan. So it's, again, identifying those biopsychosocial 
and environmental conditions that that person we're working with wants to improve. Like, I want my family to work better. You know, I want us to get along better. Um, I want to be able to work a part-time job. I want to be able to work a full-time job. I want to go into advocacy. You know, uh, I don't want to self-medicate. So whatever it is that they're saying they want to do, we try and get them connected to the supportive services and people that can help make that possible. China, um, as a as a peer recovery advocate yourself and all the work you've done since the beginning of your career, can you tell our listeners why you've come to this? Um, oh, absolutely. So I am a person in long-term recovery from a whole bunch of stuff. And um, some of those things were substance use disorder and, and, and a severe and persistent mental illness. And my substance use disorder came to the attention of the people around me and the systems around me first, because we have such that criminalized uh, perspective of anybody who uses a, a chemical to, to manage anything else in their life. And so because my, my chemical was on the, the more extreme side of um, use, uh, they said, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> and yet when they said you can't do that, they didn't make it very easy to not do that. Uh, I was physically dependent. I was emotionally dependent. I had an entire lifestyle and culture that was around it. So I got immersed into uh, substance use recovery first. And um, that was back the, when the time that I'm talking about is back in 1995. And uh, I was kind of immersed into a particular model of recovery. And in that particular model was 12 step. Um, and with a little bit of uh, encouragement and, mo and, and support, well, I don't know if I wanna really call it support from criminal justice, cause I was criminal justice involved. So there was, a, there was some external motivation for me that to change my life because I didn't wanna go to prison. And then there was the internal motivation of, I had gotten to the point with my substance use disorder that the substances weren't working nearly as effectively as they used to. And, I, and yet I was really hemmed up with needing to use them, find them, get them, support them, be under the influence of them like the vast majority of every single day. And I was getting a little tired of that. So I was, I was internally motivated to make a change, but um, kind of coaxed and coerced to um, do that on a timeline that would satisfy the criminal justice system. And I'm a chameleon. I can, you know, if, if, if you put me in the criminal justice system and say, here's a hoop, jump through it, uh, I can practice to do that. So forward-facing, looking from the criminal justice system, they probably thought I was a real good uh, probationer. You know, they thought I was really good going through that, that court system. I showed up on time. I, I spoke in language that they didn't have a problem with. On the outside, it looked like I was ceasing my use of substances. But if you know anything about substance use disorder, um, sometimes you don't make a clean break. Sometimes you got to say, well, I don't want it to destroy my life, but I, I don't, I can't even envision a world where I don't use anything ever. And, um, that was too extreme for me. So I would go periods of time without using, but then I would sneak off when I realized it probably wasn't going to get drug tested for three or four days, or, uh, you know, I could go out of town and they couldn't call me back because they, I had permission and I would get high during those times. So I was 
practicing certain parts of substance abuse recovery, but not in a purist or, (laughs) you know, totally aligned with that abstinence model of recovery. And um, one of the big reasons that I would have these weekends away was because my brain kept doing weird things that uh, everybody said, if I stopped doing drugs, my, my brain would stop doing that but I would lose my damn mind, um, have tons of energy, go days without sleeping, uh, come up with brilliant ideas and, uh, and then crash and uh, wouldn't be able to, you know, do my basic daily requirements for days or weeks at a time. And the professionals that I was working with at this time um, said, maybe you want to get a mental health evaluation. And I was, again, in that 12-step culture that said, don't take anything mood or mind-altering. And and the subtext of that was psych meds are included, you know, psych meds, anything, uh, methadone, suboxone, buprenorphine, you know, anything that could, uh, you know, be physically dependent, you know, you're just replacing one habit for another type of thing. And so I was like, well, maybe if I just, you know, don't use drugs for a little bit longer, my brain will level out. But that did not happen. And so I practiced this recovery thing for a while, several years, uh, and my head never leveled out. Like other people seem to stabilize, get jobs, take care of their families. And again, every now and again, my, my brain would just unravel. Again, those kind uh, professionals who had seen my story said, how about that mental health assessment again? And it took me about three years into this process before I agreed to it. And the only reason I agreed to it was I had become a mother during this time. And I was starting to see how this instability was affecting this child I was responsible for. And I didn't like that. So I was willing to treat myself for the benefit of, of something that I, that I really loved and and would do anything for. And I don't know if I would have gotten there had I not been a mother. Um, But, you know, that's a hypothetical. I can't say that. So I got the mental health assessment and I got the diagnosis of bipolar and I didn't like that, you know, like uh, that was something that was organically wrong with my brain. And uh, I can't, change a behavior, like I could stop using drugs, uh, and my behavior would change, and my mind would change. Um, I can do everything right, and my bipolar uh, can flare up on any given day, so I can have symptoms. So I didn't like that. It took me a little while to wrap my head around it, to understand what it was, that it wasn't like the stereotypical thing that I had been fed. These are these are people with severe and persistent mental illness. I started to accept and understand the condition that I was living with. It made sense to me, you know, when they read the diagnostic criteria of what a bi- what bipolar is, I was like, mm, it's kind of familiar, it resonates but I still didn't like it, but I started to, you know, get some understanding and and change some certain things that I was doing, including substance use. And uh, I wasn't willing to take medication at this point though. So I was still kind of, you know, I I had seen too many people uh, be under the influence of over-medication of psychotropic drugs. And uh, I was afraid that I was going to turn into a, you know, a, a zombie that didn't have a personality. And I realized for my job, that was not going to work. Um, and how long, <clears throat> how long ago was the? Did you receive this diagnosis? 
Uh, I was 32 and I'm 51 now. So, you know. Do do you, (laughs) do you find that um, uh, your substance abuse, when you stopped that, did it help your mental health? God, yes. (laughs) But I also understand that untreated, my bipolar was also well managed by doing cocaine and heroin. You know, that the ups and the downs, I kept it between the gutters. And when I took the substances away, the brain lost its guardrails. So, you know, I can understand how some people do self-medicate um, and, and, and they're looking at the short term, you know, like, okay, I'm having a manic episode. And if I, if I take a, a, a boatload of Xanax, um, I might be able to break through some of the, the symptoms that I have that go along with that. So, you know, I, 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 and, and that helped me as a recovery advocate, because I can really realize what it's like to be there in that moment. Like, look, you're telling me I'm going to improve in a year. Like I need help in the next 10 minutes. Like, what can you do to help me stabilize in the next 10 minutes? So I don't do something that's going to get me arrested, you know, uh, on YouTube or, um, on underground. Did you, what, what was the next thing? Did you decide to do medication? I, I did, but uh, I said I got the diagnosis of bipolar. Um, I still would have breakthrough mania and uh, would do some extreme things. And when I would come down and my brain would kind of be my friend again, um, I'd talk those situations over with my practitioner and they, they explained to me that I have bipolar one, which has higher highs and lower lows. And then I also have psychotic features. So when I get into a hypomanic or manic state, I can start to see and hear things that seem very real to me that other people don't share in my, my uh, understanding of. And when I, realized, when I started to really realize you know, again, we say psychotic and we think something. There is a stereotype uh, that goes along with what we think that means. And that is not accurate whatsoever. And the more that I understand psychosis, I realize a lot of people have psychotic features, like even people who don't have mental health diagnosis. Like there are people who see and hear things, radio chatter, an extra layer of color to their reality. And that's technically considered a psychotic feature. (laughs) So it became less scary the more that I understood it. But once I realized that medication could help me control that and not have those things interfering in my life, then medication became a done deal. I was like, okay. And then it was a matter of finding the right medication that I didn't have uh, burdensome side effects that outweighed the benefit of the medication. You had mentioned um, kind of early when you got the diagnosis that you kind of were, were struggling with it because you didn't think you could like, you know, change your thoughts and your brain and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on this now? Well, my brain is still weird, pretty weird. Um, I, I can still tell I have bipolar, uh, even well controlled on medication, but my extremes aren't, you know, I, I don't, I can, I get a lot of red flags before I go into any sort of episode on the high or the low side. And I intervene at those points. Um, I have a good, I have a good, I call them my tribe of five, my, my, my five people who have seen me on this journey at my best and at my lowest. And when I start to think, oh, maybe I'm having some red flag behavior, I go to them and I say, is this a red flag? 
and they go, mm -hmm. or they know that they have a relationship with me that if they see something uh, or hear something, they hear me do a podcast and they say, mm, are you sleeping enough? Are you eating good food? Are you taking your meds? You know, it's not an accusatory thing. I know that they are maybe picking up on things that I haven't seen yet. And because of that, I've been well controlled with, you know, I want to say, I don't want to say no episodes, but no episodes that have resulted in me needing to go to the hospital um, in, you know, four or five years. Wow. Thank Congratulations. That's, Thank that's you. really, that's awesome. Your story is incredible to, and it's incredible the work you do. Can you, can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what person-centered actually means? Yes. They've heard uh, us talk about this because <laughs> I'm actually certified through New York State as a mm -hmm. peer support specialist. So, um, so I kind of want to open it up a little bit just to explain what those terms mean. So person-centered um, is, is a term that we've thrown around a little bit and not really explained it. So can you explain it? So person-centered is that I'm always aligning the work that we're doing in recovery support with what the person wants to happen. So if the person says, uh, let's say we've got somebody who's experiencing severe and persistent mental illness, but is at a, a, a point they don't want to focus on that, but they realize that um, self-medicating using methamphetamine is not working for them anymore, and they get arrested too much. And so their goal might be, I don't want to get arrested. And I know meth is having something to do with that. So then we make person-centered goals of, um, okay, let's look, let's look at how you get arrested and what happens leading up to that. And okay, meth is involved with that. So we've identified that as maybe being a triggering thing for getting arrested again. And, uh, and then we look at your relationship with meth and how that seemed to be a good idea and what it does for you, pros and cons. Um, we reduce harm. Like you may not be at a point where you're like, I'm totally going to give this up, but what can I do to make sure you don't come out of it with an additional chronic health condition like hep B or C or <laughs> HIV? You know, like what can we do to reduce the harm? Um, and then as you are motivated to continue to uh, change your behaviors and get a better understanding of how this, this whole puzzle comes together to get you arrested on a regular basis, we move in that direction. And I do it at their timeline, not with my expectation of where they should be um, because I've worked with them for six months. So they can go back and forth. They can make circles. They can change their mind in the middle. And I can come and say, well, you, it's the, last week you told me you didn't want to smoke meth. And they're like, well, this week I do. <laughs> so person-centered is very much, and, it, and it's frustrating for our support people sometimes. And it's frustrating for our provider systems sometimes. And it's really frustrating for well-intentioned court systems uh, or child welfare systems that they have a timeline that they can work with a person. Like you only get 22 months in child welfare and you're either gonna be a safe, strong parent who can get your kids back and you, they have to make permanent decisions for your kids. And that's a federal law. So in terms of how I got into doing the work that I'm doing, it was running up against uh, trying to do advocacy well for person-centered strength-based recovery supports and people telling me you can't do that because this policy is in the way or this law, it's against the law to do it that way. Or we have federal rule that says we have a timeline we have to adhere to. And so then I'm like, well, we got to change policy then. 
And policy, you know, policy is more of a long game. Advocacy, you can raise issue around, you know, something happens that's unfair in a community, you can raise voices and get people to coalesce around that and make a change in, you know, six weeks to three months. But policy and the machinations of government, um, you know, if you're going to, if you're citing to change a law or make a new law, like you got a, a three to five year timeline. And then some of these things we've got such stigma and bias around and systems that have been operating in this outdated, you know, unworkable mechanism for 40, 50, 100 years. Uh, we have to break that down and that could take 20 years to do. Yeah, and that's if we can keep the planet together in that time too. It's just you know, to say <laughs> the least, you know what I that's mean. It's a whole different podcast. <laughs> You're not getting there, uh, China. I want to be very cognizant of your time. How are you doing on time? You okay? Oh, I'm fine. I I had you down for quite oh. a while. So oh, cool. Good. So, so you kind of actually made a segue without even doing, without even knowing it. Can you explain to our listeners what harm reduction is? Yes. Because I okay. think there's a lot of talk of that seems to be on the internet or whatever lately so the harm reduction is a it's actually it's really simple if you think about um i'm gonna go out in the sun and i'm gonna put some sunscreen on that's harm reduction right right? so i I realize if i go out in the sun it might feel good i really like it but the next day i'm all red and blistered and you know some sunscreen will allow me to enjoy the sun uh, as much as I want to without having, you know, a burn the next day. Um, Seatbelts, right? right? So, safe uh, sex, all of it. Yeah, I'm 51. Right. I remember a, a time we didn't have seatbelts in cars. And I remember oh, yeah. when they passed, passed the, the law that we had, they mandated seatbelts. And there was all sorts of hubbub about, you can't tell me what I got to do. And and now seatbelts are a no brainer. Like, they don't even make cars that don't have, you know, half the time they automatically belch in um so we kind of over 40 years have accepted harm reduction with seat belts um another one that's kind of a no-brainer uh is don't drink and drive get a designated driver and if you think about it that's around a substance but it's around a legal culturally acceptable substance right but to reduce the harm don't be a knucklehead and get behind the wheel of a car if you've been drinking. Go get, you know, enjoy yourself, but, uh, you know, call an Uber. Get someone to take you home. So that's harm reduction. So when we think of it in sunscreen, seatbelts, and and uh, designated drivers, it, people don't really have too much of a problem with it. But when I say, I'm going to give people who use injection opiates uh, or injection drugs I'm going to give them safe syringes. I'm going to give them bleach and sterile water. I'm going to teach them how to have a better technique for injecting so that they don't have open wounds, abscesses, and endocarditis um, that may kill them. You know, the, the drugs may not kill them. The lifestyle uh, of harm may kill them. So it's treating people with dignity and respect, realizing that no matter what your personal choice is that particular day, um, you're still a human. And you deserve all of your interactions to be addressed with that respect um, and to educate you so that you can maybe reduce the harm of certain decisions that you're making. Um, You know, I see a lot of people uh, in our culture um, do high risk sexual behaviors and, you know, people are hormone driven. You can see that, you know, in the moment your brain says, this is a great idea. 
And then later on you say, oh, that could, that was really risky. And I was lucky I got away with X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, we, we embrace harm reduction around sex by giving people education of, of that. But we don't think that people are not going to have sex or high risk um, sexual encounters because of that. So there are people, it is not a moral judgment to, to say, maybe I don't support drug use, but I, um, I, I respect that somebody may be making that choice today and I don't want you to die from it. So that's in substance use disorder, but harm reduction in mental health is uh, a whole different beast because I still see a lot of internal bias and well-meaning family and friends and systems want to make decisions like let's call the cops and get you hospitalized because your behavior is no longer something I can control. And that is not person-centered and that is not strength-based. Yeah, that's tough. Um, I've had some personal experience of that in, in the last year. So oh, uh, I, I know fun. all about it. Yeah, I, yeah. I was the one who had the call though. Okay. I had to have uh, I had to have um, a crisis team come in for my mother. Okay. I had exhausted yeah. all. I had no choice. That was the only and way I, she was getting to the hospital. But it was. And I appreciate that. I really do. Um, I work. You know, I I work closely with NAMI that really supports the family and friends. Yeah. But I also try to make sure that you say like, there's a there's a training. Have you ever heard of leap training? No, I have not. All right. It's Dr. Amado, uh, Xavier Amado, and he uh, he has a book called I'm Not Sick and I Don't Need Help. And it's about his he's a psychiatrist and he uh, has a brother who had severe and persistent mental illness, schizophrenia. And he dealt with this all the time. And he, and he came from his psychiatric background of I'm the expert. I love you. I, you know, I don't want to do anything that would harm you, but you need to go to the hospital and take medication. And his brother, you know, anytime that he tried to pull that out in, and take autonomy from a person, um, you know, he, the brother fought him and ran away and, you know, continued to get into more trouble. So he developed this program called LEAP Training, and it's Listen, Empathize, Accept, and Partner. And I find it incredibly beneficial when you have different goals. You still want to help in the same way. And honestly, if you get to the commonality, like no one wants to get arrested. No one wants to die as a result of their um, behaviors. No, and there's so, a lot of that that's happened in recent years. Yeah. So if you get to the common things of, I understand you don't want this, this, and this, and it usually comes down to when I go to the hospital, they strip me of everything that is comfortable and they don't really help me. They just kind of make, give me an environment where I can't harm myself actively, but I'm left alone with all of my dark thoughts. And if I was a little suicidal, you put me in the hospital, I'm usually a lot suicidal while I'm sitting there waiting. You know, you only see the a, a provider in the hospital once, twice a day at best. And you can get there for the first 24, if it's a weekend, you might be there 36 hours before you see a doctor and get some meds. <laughs> so if I was on meds, I might not be on them while I'm in this right. setting. So can you explain that, that this uh, acronym you just did? Because my, my question is, what do you do with a person that 
has been through the system and that, and that knows how it works. You don't right. know this person, but they know your, you know, type and yeah. that, and let's face it, people lie. So we know people how to lie get, because to answer those questions. Um, I don't want to be it, in the hospital. I can get myself out of the hospital. So going back to your question, the, the, the part, the accepting partner that I have to accept, like if, if, uh, and I'm going to speak from my own delusional experience with bipolar. Like if somebody comes to me when I am having an active delusion and says, that's not based in reality. Like, I'm going to be like, well, you just have a limited understanding of what reality is. And I've got, you know, maybe I have superpowers and, you know, I'm going to come at them with, oh, you know, I'm sorry that you can't understand this, but this is a brilliant idea. So come at me in partnership that except the A of accepting is, okay, China is really believing what she's saying right now. So let me wrap my head around what that must be like for her to be experiencing this and saying this for this to be her best reality. And then partner, okay, if we follow this through and you try to do something that is going to break the laws of physics, um, could you get hurt, physically hurt? Um, we've been through these types of situation before, and sometimes you end up in bed curled up, not taking a shower for three weeks at a time, and you get fired from your job. Is that what you want to happen? You know, so part, follow it through. I can still do that even in my delusions very often. And if we can find ways to partner, then I might say, you know what? I'm going to call the hospital on myself and I'm going to get that crisis team out and I'm going to ask for help. And then when I get to the hospital, I'm not going to lie to them because in partnership with the people I trust and feel supported by, um, I realized we all want the same thing. Doesn't yeah, always work. I'm telling you. I'm, yeah. I, it, no, that's it, fair. I, I just, it, I feel like. The, it's got to be very trust-based, too, it seems, it's, too. And it's long. Like, But I feel I like need... each party has to have their accountability. And on top of that, we yeah. need a better system. We need if, – oh. if, if people are scared of a hospital or they're scared of this or that, then let's take a look at that. And if it's if there's a common commonality, why are they scared? And what do they want instead of this? You know, and look at that because, you know – is it, is when it, you think about what we have currently in terms of behavioral health support, it's just one step up above incarceration or, uh, you know, state hospitals from the 50s. Like, it's really not all that good. And it's because we underfund behavioral health uh, and we can't, prov I mean, like, the, if you talk to the people who are designing and operating these systems, they know we should be doing better. They're not fighting us on that. They're saying, I don't have the resources to do it any better. And so in order to do anything, this is what I got to do. And so, again, we have to do some advocacy and some policy change to really, if, if we say mental health is important in this country, we have to put our money where it counts. And, you know, you just look at the disparity or the individual line item cost of something in the defense budget versus a year of a behavioral health agency's operations cost, and you'll see where we, where our values are in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it it really does. There's there's so much wrapped up in it. That's just not good. When you that, said that that the what were you? <laughs> I'm I wasn't quite clear. Um, you were saying com comparing something to the incarceration 
Oh, yeah. yeah. So when, when you go to the hospital, all right. So I'll just tell you my experience in the hospital. So well, um, I just, I, 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 before you start though, like that's your experience, but I, I just don't, I find it hard to believe that that's like 360 degrees, you know, I've been, I've been in there too. And I, I've actually had a great experience. So, okay. All right. Well, maybe your hospitals are better than, than ours, but I'm just thinking like, if you go to an emergency department and you say, I need behavioral health help, they put you in the psych ED, which is basically a center block ward, no windows, um, you know, the waterproof thin cots, uh, you get one blanket and uh, you can't even do much. It's not even that big because they don't want you to be able to wrap or wrap it around yourself and hang yourself with it. Um, you know, it, it's very institutional. The everything from the way you shower to how you shower, when you shower, you know, it, it, there's a, there's definitely a corrections vibe to it. <laughs> I get you. Okay. Well, how, how would you like to see that change? What, what changes would be more beneficial? All right. Now you're going to hear my bipolar come out in this, but that's I, all right. I think the psyche D should be kind of like a, um, like, like a little bit of a, a theme park, amusement park, you know, maybe a lazy river or some jacuzzis that we could basically spend our time in a comfortable environment that there were providers that would check in on you and make sure that you are safe, you know, a, a much more comfortable waiting area. And then once you got into the provider area, it was very much person-centered that the 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 levels of support was was based on where you thought you needed it with con with with conditions of okay I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deliberately put harm into this environment but I'm also gonna say I'm also gonna trust you that if you say I'm not I want you to be able to facilitate a conversation telling me how suicidal you are at the moment and I think right now we have a system that people naturally lie about those about their their authenticity with those um, answers and if we have this system that if I tell you the truth, I get less person-centered um, support, then why, when, well, how so, am I encouraged to tell you the truth? So a better, a better understanding of mental health in general. So like our, you know, mental health professionals, they yeah. need to like, you know, again, with our educational system, it's all antiquated. We need to do better yeah. all around. Would you say that that is kind of a, a sum of what you're talking about? Well, one of the things that I say with psych meds is that we put a we put some men on the moon in the 60s and um, we haven't really advanced psychotropic, you know, <laughs> pharmaceutical support all that far from the 60s. Um, you know, we've got some atypical antipsychotics. We've got some long acting injectables. But really, if we put our energy into, if we put the same energy into, we're going to go to the moon as we did for advancing understanding and treatment of behavioral health and, and mental illness, uh, we should be a lot farther along than we are. No, oh, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I think we both can agree on that. I kind of goes yeah, back to what you're all saying agree that on that. To, to change, you know, to change something like that is, you know, That's there's, 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 yeah, it's a long haul and there's multiple yeah mountains in the way of that but i agree oh i'm i'm for the sake of this podcast i'm illustrating where we have issues i'm not yeah, yeah, saying, yeah. i'm not saying that in six months we can fix this 
No, I know. Oh I know yeah, that. no, we know. Oh yeah, okay. we know. Yeah, no, 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 no. That wasn't even implied at all. Because yeah, this is the long game. Because I, I, I've, I've started to learn about advocacy just because I've worked. Uh, the job that I'm actually leaving currently is actually a lobbying firm for agriculture. Okay. So I, I've learned about advocacy, but I also have done advocacy for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and gone and you tell your story in front of, you know, political people. But it's you really do have to you do have to go there. It has to be part of it See, because it's you you can't fix it from one side or the other it just all has to be involved and you have to yeah. involve those people regardless of whether you want to or not so and you have to ask the questions of why is it this way why is the system built this way and they'll tell you they'll tell you the infrastructure the barriers the the lack of funding and they'll tell you what we need to change it and then you you start chipping away at that little by little yeah and i think it i think it's a great thing to have a company like yours ah look at that <laughs> Uh, could have hung out. Um, I would have brought mine in. <clears throat> Fernando hasn't made an appearance in a while. Um, Timmy, uh, I wanted to, uh, start wrapping up soon. So I wanted to know if you wanted to ask China anything before we start the lightning round. Not that I can think of maybe just, um, anything that you would like to add, anything you would like to say on, on behalf of either peer support or just, your um, general kind of uh, any kind of general words on mental health and, and in that aspect. I think for anybody who might be thinking that they're struggling with a, a mental health situation and that can be themselves or the, a loved one, that mental health do doesn't have to be the defining feature that affects every area of your life. Uh, and that is of the person or as a family dynamic. Uh, with good understanding, most mental health situations are able to be treated and well controlled. They don't go away, but they become a facet of who and what you are instead of, you know, every, everything people think of when they, when they hear your name. Um, and that, you know, don't be afraid to, to come out and talk about those challenges. Normalizing the conversation around mental health uh, improves us as a community and as a society. So we take the macro level of what I'm doing with it and we try and make it make it safer for the next person to address their issue. Right now, the average between diagnosis and well-treated uh, symptoms is about 10 years. You know, let's, let's aim for that being five. Yeah, that sounds like well, a great goal. That sounds, sounds like a good plan. Well said. Well said. It does. I think with more conversations with people like yourself and everyone like this, uh, I think we can, I think we can try to accomplish that. China, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to talk with us. Um, we always finish up the podcast with three questions, so I'm going to let Tim take it away. Do you have a favorite or a least favorite word? Oh, a favorite. I think I like phantasmagoric. Well, that's a first. <laughs> yeah, that's... It's an Edgar Allan Poe word. <laughs> All right. From from which piece? I have no idea. All right. Wow. I'm, I'm going to have to try to look that for I'm going to I'm gonna have to look that up. <laughs> that's awesome. Phantasmagoric. All right. 
What about a least favorite? No. Eh, that that's, sounds... that's, that's an advocacy thing, though. Yeah. I don't like no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's a good thing to have. Um, I usually ask about animals at this point. Okay. Um, do you have a spirit animal? And do you have, and I could clearly see you have a pet already or yes. a member of the family, furry member yeah. of the family. So I was going to ask you, are, are you a cat, dog, or other person? I'm a cat person. Uh, I, I I think, you know, cats kind of embody the 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 consent principle you don't do anything to a cat without their consent. And that, That's right. that, goes back, that goes back to my person-centered, cat-based goals. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's awesome. So is a cat your spirit animal too? No, I think I, this, is, this is a weird one, but I think a groundhog is my spirit animal because they're kind of, they're kind of uh, just plain, little chunky sometimes. And, uh, and, and they're, they're really, they really take care of their family and responsibilities. And I think that's an admirable goal. So I think maybe a groundhog's my spirit animal. Wow. Sweet. I like it. Excellent. Very good. Not if glamorous. There, <laughs> if there was something that you could do or that you would like to see done for mental health as a whole without any kind of restraint, yes. what would it be? Just like a total wish list item. Oh, sure. give, us the, give us the Department of Defense's budget for behavioral health. Wow, that's a hell of a wish right there, boy. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I that's you know that's I've heard we've heard a lot of different things, but that's shooting for the moon. Let me tell you, that's <laughs> that would definitely change some things. We might get those. We might all get that. Uh, as long as you have the. As, as long as you have the proper people allocating it, it would change. Yes. I think there's, there's, there's definitely uh, variables to that. You know, you have to have the right minded people. You have to have the people that know where to allocate it, what works best. You know, it's not, I, I agree, but. The people that I've met at the, at the States and, you know, multiple States and, and at the federal level who are doing these key positions, they have brilliant ideas, but they are constrained by the systems that they work within and I think if we opened up the floodgates for funding, I think they could actualize some of those very well-apportioned ideas. I'd like to see them try at least. Sure. Yeah, make the attempt because a lot of them don't make the attempt. I get mm -hmm. it. I get it. China. Oregon, think... oh, yeah, or Oregon oh. decriminalized. We probably won't put this in, but Oregon made a state level to decriminalize drugs, and you know it it changed the war on drugs approach in their state and allowed more people to access safe conversations about changing behavior. So not everybody stopped by any stretch of the imagination, but again, going back to harm reduction. Well, right. Make it safer. That's why like, and that start, you know, like the MDMA stuff when they'd go to a rave or whatever, where they were checking, you know, stuff. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I can cut this out if we don't want to put that in. That's fine. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this morning, man. And thank you for thank all the you work you've me. thank you for all the work you've done. And you know, I'm so glad you're still here and fighting and doing what you do because you know people like yourself make this go around. So yeah, people, and like you the, inspire the place, me. So woo. that My place that to, you know that does that does what you do is is excellent for sure. 
Thrive is pretty amazing. And again, yeah. we want to do it. We want to do peer recovery support anywhere and everywhere they're going to let us. I think the places you get, you interface with peer recovery support is so limited right now because it's usually a behavioral health provider. And I, you know, what, what good could we do if we interfaced with people who had mental health or substance use challenges in job and family services and Department of Education and, you know, all, all, Department of Corrections, you know, just being able to help people navigate these complex systems and social issues um, makes it less scary Absolutely. and might get there quicker. Yeah, and the, the fear is the biggest the biggest trigger, man. It's scary. It's yeah. a scary system and it's overwhelming. And when you're already trying to be, you know, to become well again, it's like, it's, whew, it's crazy. It, yeah. And I don't mean to use that word, but it's just, it is, it's. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good use of the word. <laughs> it is a good use of the describing word. Describing a person, that's an insane system. You know, it is. <laughs> and it'll make you insane too. That's the problem. Yeah. That's, and that's a big part. And thank goodness for people like yourself. Thank you. I, you know, it's an honor and a privilege. I never thought I would make it out of my 20s, given my level of severity of symptoms. So now my philosophy is to die young as late as possible and do the good work in the meantime. There you go. I love it. Love it. That's awesome. Thank you so much for doing it, too. Timmy, what do you think, buddy? Excellent conversation. Nice to meet you both. Thank you very much for Likewise. being here. Yeah, absolutely, man. Open conversations, talking about it, trying to get the conversation started, you know. Yeah. Keep it going. More Keep frequent, going. raise awareness, do the thing. Yeah, get rid of and the good stigma. good luck with your, your family members. That's never, I, I've got, my, I have a, a adult child who's got severe and persistent mental illness, probably thanks to me. Um, and, you know, it's tough. They're 23 and they don't want to hear nothing. I no, got absolutely. my agenda for their wellness plan. <laughs> no, I'm sure they don't because you represent something completely different than what we think. So I get, I, yeah, it's, it's been a long journey to yeah. get to this point, but, but it's, yeah. it's been a really cool one, man. I'm glad I chose to stay in 2013. So I'm like, yeah, Me too. good. So thank you very much. Thank and you. Until next time, be well, be thank safe, be <laughs> thank you for giving us a listen new episodes every wednesday if you listen on apple podcast you can share rate review and even subscribe so you'll never miss an episode other ways to support the show follow us on social media share the content share our episodes you can also buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash above ground pod. For further concerns, show ideas, or just to say hi, you can email us at abovegroundpodcast at gmail. Once again, thank you for listening and supporting mental health. Keep the conversation going and stay above.